You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Asian stocks sold off this morning, with the Nikkei and Hang Seng index down over 2%, while in the U.S. the Dow posted modest gains, with the Nasdaq encountering heavy selling pressure that exacerbated till the closing bell, ending down just over 2%. Growthy names like Tesla, Zoom, Peloton, and DocuSign led the way down. Meanwhile, crude oil surged 6%, bringing energy stocks along for the ride. How much of this rally in crude hinges on the fact that the Suez Canal is currently blockaded by a mega barge five times more massive than the Titanic remains to be seen. Later, I'll be speaking to quantitative macro investor Hugh Roberts of Quant Insight, who's going to analyze how the gyrations in the stock market hinge on key macro variables like rates, growth, forex, and liquidity. But first, Jared Dillian returns to the daily briefing to give a much needed appraisal of investor sentiment in this topsy-turvy market, as well as his updated views on growth versus value, Tesla, and Bitcoin. Jared, welcome back to Real Vision. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks, thanks for having me. It's great to be here again. Yeah, it's great to have you back. The last time that you came on uh, with your interview with me, it was very well-timed because you said, Rates are going to rise. The economy is going to reopen. It's, it's going to grow. Inflation expectations are, are going to pick up, and that is going to severely um, uh, harm the the technology sector, which at that time was on an absolute tear. And Jared, you know, since our interview about let's say a month and a half ago, that that really has uh, come to a T. So I'm glad that you're here to explain what you see going forward. Has the rotation from growth into value gone too far? What are you thinking of that at this juncture? Yeah, I mean, it's you know, I'm, I have a lot less conviction on the market right now. I think we're sort of in a state of flux. Um, having said that, I think that value is going to outperform growth for a long period of time. I mean, whenever you get these style box trades, growth, value, large, small, um, these trend for a really, really long time. So I think we made the turn towards value back when the vaccines were announced, the first Pfizer vaccine. Uh, that's when value had a 15 standard deviation day over growth. And uh, I think it's going to continue on in the future. Now it's gotten a little bit choppy. Uh, I would say in the last week, value was underperformed for a little bit. It's doing better today. But what we're seeing is, you know, the, the index, the S&P 500 index is very quiet. You know, we're pretty much unch over the last week, but there's a great deal of violence beneath the surface. I mean, you're seeing huge moves and I mean, we, you know, the IWMs, Russell 2000 was down 4% the other day. We're seeing huge moves in the style box and in factors. And, uh, you know, when I, when I think about this from a historical context, you know, I was uh, in the business during the dot-com bubble. And we had that same sort of violence with factors, although we weren't calling them factors back then. We didn't really have the vocabulary to describe this. We were calling it old economy stocks and new economy stocks. And it really, like the way you would see it was, it would be reported in the news one day the Dow would be up 300 points and the NASDAQ would be down, or the Dow would be down and the NASDAQ would be up. 
it was value versus growth and you had this huge amount of churn and that lasted for about six months and then it resulted in you know a two and a half year bear market so I, you know i don't i don't have a lot of conviction as to the direction of stocks right now but you know this 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 type of activity the internals as some people would call it this is a very unhealthy market and why is it unhealthy jared because when i look at the interasset correlations um you know it's it's quite easy to predict if the if the nasdaq has a huge sell off it's likely that rates rose in that day and that r- reminds me of what you said about during the dot com bubble how oh you know dow is having its day nasdaq's having its day and you have this this switch off this this sort of you know they're handing the baton back to each other day after day i think in your uh, in, in in your newsletter the daily dirt nap you call it the blob can you explain what is the blob how are you seeing it and why is it as you say unhealthy well, let's start with the unhealthy part. I mean, the reason it's unhealthy is that all of this is dream, being driven by the rates market. Okay. And this is a very bad thing. You know, the stock market has finally figured out that rates rising is it's bad for a bunch of reasons. I mean, it's bad because it acts as a break on the economy, but it's bad because we have so much debt that it actually threatens our solvency. Now, you know, the corporate finance textbooks would say that the tech stocks go down when rates go up because they're the longest duration assets. They don't pay any dividends. It's all just terminal value. So when you discount that to the present, uh, it, you know, it basically they're super long duration. So that's what's going on with that. But um, what was the other question you asked me? You asked that they're unhealthy or. Yeah. And and what what uh, what does it mean? And what the blob? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've I've called this the blob for like the last twenty years. I mean, this is hard from a portfolio construction standpoint. And typically, when I construct a portfolio, not only am I diversified, you know, in the in stocks or across asset classes, but I'm diversified across factors because if you pile into one factor, then you just have a huge amount of volatility and you don't have that diversification. And the interesting thing is, is that really for the first time in my career, um, I have made a, a directional bet on one factor. I am, the whole portfolio is value. I've made a bet on value. And now I'm getting caught in this churn up and down with these factor rotations. And uh, it's, you know, it's a bit unnerving, but over the long term, like I said, over three to five years, I believe that value stocks are gonna outperform a lot. Yeah, Jared, as you were talking about the factors, I was scratching my head because I was thinking, you know, Jared, I, I've seen uh, what you've written about in your portfolio, and it seems like you are very leveraged in these reopening names, Delta, you know, commercial real estate, um, and as well as a, a little a short, an overlay of a, of a short technology, short, short growth. Um, so I, I want to get into value and how it plays with the reopening. I think they are largely aligned. Um, but tell, tell me about the, the reopening and the pickup and growth, because I understand, Jared, that uh, you were in Miami and uh, you recently, and you uh, witnessed firsthand uh, the the true extent of the reopening, the the, the uh, excitement with which people were going out and partying. Um, what can you what can you tell me about, about that? Yeah, I mean, I was just in Miami Beach. I mean, so if you saw all the reports of what was going on down there and how crazy it was, uh, it was. You know, I go to Miami a couple of times a year, two or three times a year, and this was the craziest I've ever seen it. It was absolutely nuts. I went to a nightclub for two nights. Uh, it was packed both nights, 
and the ticket prices are higher than they ever have been. People are throwing money at each other. It is a food fight. I mean, this economy is hot. We are no longer in recession. The recession is over. And from the point of the stock market, the pandemic is over. The stock market is not responding to the pandemic. It's not responding to lockdowns. It's not responding to deaths or infection rates. It doesn't care anymore. The stock market has moved on. The only thing the stock market cares right now is rates. It's all it cares about. Has that view changed? Uh, is the market more or less worried in terms of sentiment about exposure to rates? Because it seems like you know, it's the rate of change of the rate of change. When that first move happens, it, it shocks everyone. But has the market become a little bit accustomed to these, you know, these daily swings in, in the rate market, or is it still extremely afraid of them? What, what do you think? No, I don't think so. I, I think with each new high in tenure yields, uh, we'll have more volatility in the stock market, and I do expect uh, rates to go higher, um, you know, slowly, incrementally. Um, you know, one of the things I want to talk about is just the sheer amount of supply that's getting dumped on the bond market. If you go back a few weeks ago, we had that seven-year auction that was just a complete disaster, and you know the market just totally gagged. Then you know we had a 20-year bond auction that went pretty well. But I don't know if you saw the news, but you know the Democrats are proposing. We you know we just did a 1.9 trillion dollar stimulus. The Democrats are proposing another spending package of $3 trillion, which is going to include infrastructure and climate change spending, and it's also going to include tax hikes. $3 trillion plus $1.9 trillion is $4.9 trillion in the span of three months. Just for reference, we take in $3.5 trillion a year. At this rate, we could have a deficit of $10 trillion this year. This is more spending in three months than we did in all of World War II, and that's adjusted for today's dollars. We are spending more in just a couple of months than we spent in World War II. So when you ask me which way rates are going, the amount of supply that we are going to be dumping on the bond market, I don't know where the buyers are going to come from. Now, I talked about this you know, back in 2008, because in 2000, eh, it was 2009, 2010, we were running deficits of $1.8 trillion. You know, and back then, I was saying, who is going to buy these bonds? Now, people stepped up to buy the bonds. In fact, the bid to cover on those auctions was very good, but that was because the stock market was crashing and bonds were the safe alternative. It's different this time. It's different this time. So I don't, and, you know, foreign buyers of U.S. Treasuries are down to about 29%. So really the only marginal buyer here is the Fed, and you can draw your own conclusions from that. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. Yeah, so uh, from, from what you said, it sounds like there's really no other conclusion other than, than rates will rise. How are you eyeing uh, some of the different sectors? You know, the reflation names, the reflation sectors, materials, industrials, airlines, they, ha they have the same exposure to that reopening, and they are generally value names, but they have different uh, different sensitivities. Uh, tell us about uh, some of the ones that, that you particularly like. Uh, let's start with the airlines. 
Yeah. I mean, look, like I'm really, I'm not a great stock picker. I don't do a lot in the way of fundamentals. I pick stocks thematically. And, you know, when you're talking about the airlines, um, just, you know, just from as an anecdote, I flew down to Miami in January. And this was back when the pandemic was in full force. And I was able to buy a first class ticket for $480. In March, just a couple couple days ago, I flew to Miami. I was able to buy a coach ticket for $700. So going from buying a first class ticket for $480 to a coach ticket for $700, same flight. Tickets are, are getting much more expensive. The, the demand for flights is going to outstrip supply. The airlines have parked planes in the deserts. They've furloughed pilots. They've furloughed flight attendants, and they have to bring this capacity online, and they're going to be very slow to do so. I have not – every flight I have flown on has been full, every single one. So they are going to be earning excess profits probably for the next 12 months. Okay, so that's on the airlines. Thanks. Uh, now can you tell me about the the banks? Um, they, it seems like they are a reflation name, and they, if yields rise, they definitely will benefit, as they have already. Um, but what, you know, what, what's your view on the banks? I don't have a strong view on the banks. I haven't done a lot of work in the banks. Uh, I, I've invested in insurance, uh, which is kind of a similar trade. It also benefits from rising rates. And these are also cheap stocks. Uh, you know, insurance is some of the cheapest stocks out there. I mean, they're definitely value. You're talking about single-digit PEs, decent dividend yields. I mean, these are really some cheap stocks. And life insurance in particular, life insurance is super interesting because, you know, that business has picked up since COVID because people were sort of faced with their own mortality and they said, wow, maybe I should buy some life insurance. So their business is picking up. And also the demographics are pretty great because now you have millennials that are reaching age 40 and they're getting to the age where they're starting to buy life insurance. And that's a big bulge in the population. So I really like these stocks, life insurance stocks for the next you know, couple of years. Thanks, Jared. Now, uh, I want to ask you about a quote that you had uh, in one of your recent newsletter. You, you said that uh, conviction can be a double-edged sword. Uh, tell me about that. How are you uh, viewing your own conviction, and how are you viewing the conviction of other players in the market? Is there speculative excess in the markets? Um, uh, you know, it, it, is that, do you think that it's, if there is excess, is it going to be drained out quickly? Tell me about conviction and, and speculative excess. Yeah, this is a super interesting topic. You know, um, conviction is important because it determines how you size a position. If you have high conviction on a position, you typically size it bigger than if you have low conviction. But the problem is, is that, you know, look, in my career, there have been a handful of times where I've had max conviction on a position and I was just wrong. Like I just I, I totally got it wrong. And the problem with having max conviction on something when you're wrong is that when it starts to move against you, you are in disbelief and you don't sell or maybe even add to the position and the problem gets worse and worse and worse. So, you know, I try to be pretty emotionally detached uh, from my trading. And I, and I also try to be not too sure about anything because, you know, we have to you have to have an idea like we don't know what we don't know. So I just try to be humble. And, uh, you know, I, I figure I know just enough to, you know, be dangerous and, uh, you know, not size anything too big. And what about uh, the other participants in the market that you see? Do, do they know enough? 
uh, to be dangerous, perhaps to themselves. I'm thinking about you know, sectors which were extremely frothy uh, up until a few months ago, and perhaps still are, like you know, SPACs, electric vehicle stocks. Um, you know, that as the liquidity has flown from growth into value, um, you know, what, what's your outlook on those on those aspects of the market? Well, let's talk about Tesla in particular because that's a pretty good test case. And I'm I'm not like a Tesla bear or a Tesla bull. I really don't care. Um, you know, but you ha that's that's a stock where you have people with max conviction in both directions. You know, you have people with 100 percent conviction that it's a fraud and you have people with 100 percent conviction like Kathy Wood that it's going to be a three trillion dollar stock. OK. And there's not a lot in between. OK. So the, one of those one of those groups of people is going to get blown up for sure. No doubt about it. Let's uh, zoom in on Tesla, because the last time you came on, you said that you, you had a put option on Tesla. Uh, I would be shocked if that weren't a phenomenal trade for you, given um, you know, where Tesla ended out, both in terms of the underlying price as well as the volatility. I'm assuming you know, that trade played out very well for you. Um, and, and you but I noticed that now you, you've closed out that trade. You remain uh, a long put or, or short Facebook, um, but, but not on Tesla or other, some of those speculative names. So it sounds to me, Jared, like you're very, it's not so much that you're bearish on tech, it's that you're extremely bullish on those cyclicals names. Do I, do I have that right? Yeah, that's about right. I mean, I don't like being short anything. You know, I'm, I'm a very bad short seller. Uh, you know, I don't like talking about the winning trades and it wasn't a very big trade. It was a small trade, but it was a put spread in Tesla. And the reason it was successful is because the timing on, on the exit was terrific. So it just, you know, it was a lot of luck that went into that. Uh, Facebook, uh, you know, I was short Facebook through a put spread. That is up 18% in the last couple of months, and that is not working out so well. So, yeah. One thing we haven't talked about, Jared, yet is energy, which obviously is going to be a huge beneficiary from a reopening. We have seen a big run up in the, the you know, the big oil stocks, uh, and that, that ETF XLE has played very well. Um, we did have that crash uh, last week of, of about six or seven dollars that sort of stunned the market. Today we're having a, a big upsurge uh, because of the, the barge that's stuck in the Suez Canal. Um, what, what's your outlook on on, out, on excuse me on oil and energy going forward? Yeah, I try not to get too uh, tied up by the noise. Um, you know, I'm still bullish. Uh, I you know I try not to focus on the volatility. You know. Uh, I don't know about the supply side, you know, as I talked about with my recent trip to Miami, the demand side for energy is just going to be massive. It's absolutely going to be massive. Um, and I think, uh, you know, symbolically, you know, the Biden administration's hostility to fossil fuels, I mean, that's going to play into higher oil prices. Um, you know, I think WTI could get to 80 easily, maybe 100. Um, so I think this trade still has some legs in it. And like I said, I just try I try not to get too focused on the day-to-day -day volatility. So Jared, I don't know if you know, but uh, today and over the next few days, we're having something at Real Vision called the Crypto Gathering, where we've gathered, gathered sort of all sorts of people from the crypto community, Bitcoin, Ethereum, the, alt, the altcoins, NFTs. Uh, and uh, suffice to say, I'm assumed that you know, the vast majority of those people will be extremely constructive about crypto assets. But it's my understanding, Jared, that you have a slightly different view. I know you know you were bullish at Bitcoin. You you sold it uh, uh, you know somewhere in that, that that thirty to forty range um, a few months ago. 
Um, but now I understand that you are, are quite bearish on, on Bitcoin as well as NFTs. Do I have that right? And what can you tell me about that? No, you have that wrong, actually. Uh, I'm not, I, don't, I don't have a view on Bitcoin. I'm not bullish or bearish. Um, what I, what I, the, the part that I focus on is the sentiment aspect. Okay. okay. And, uh, and we already talked about conviction. We talked about how conviction can work in both ways. Uh, conviction can work against you. Um, you know, it, you know, my experience with Bitcoin. So, uh, you know, I was bearish on it like 2017 during the bubble. And then I got bullish on it in like 2019, bought some and I was very public when I bought some. I said, I'm bullish on Bitcoin. And I tweeted about it and stuff like that. That was around 10,000. And then on January 6, I sold it for 40,500. And uh, I was public about that, too. I'm very transparent. And that earned me a great deal of scorn from the Bitcoin community. You sold your Bitcoin, whatever. Um, you know, I think a normal human reaction, if you're a normal person, and if you see somebody make a trade that earns them 4x, I think a normal reaction is nice trade, good job, right? Like way to go. But it's a call, you know? And I had thousands of people coming after me on Twitter. It, you know, it blew up my mentions for days. And uh, like, it, what I, what's crazy about this is like, why do you care? Why do you care that like I, I'm just I'm just like a guy? Like, why do you care that I sold my Bitcoin? Why is this? Why is this news? You know what I mean? So what the interesting part about that is that I was in the call and I didn't really realize it was a call. And then I left the call and then I was like. You know, holy shit, this is a cult. <laughs> so, <laughs> so just that behavior is like, you know, so people ask me, like, are you gonna get back in? I'm like, you know, I'm a trader. Like if it if it gets down to an attractive level, then maybe, but you know, not here. That's so interesting. Uh, th thanks for correcting me, by the way, about, about your views. I, um, I know what you mean about, let's say you have a good trade and, and uh, I'm happy for you. Sure, that's a great trade. And then there's another level of you own Exxon, I own Exxon, Exxon goes from 20 to 40. I'm happy for the both of us. And if you sell it, like, I, I don't care. I'm like, I'm, I'm bullish Exxon. I'll take, give me the Exxon. Yeah. Um, but it, it is, it, you do have that phenomenon where you sort of betrayed the movement if you sell. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, so that's Bitcoin. Uh, now I understand. I was reading your paper. You've got a uh, some some views on NFTs, non fungible tokens. What can you tell me about that? I think that's you know from a sentiment standpoint. I think that's. I mean, look, like some people would say that you know they'd say you don't get it, Dillian. You don't under you don't you don't under you don't understand. Okay. I'm like, what don't I understand? I have the Beeple JPEG. I have it on my computer, right? If I wanted to print it out and put it on my wall, I would have it. So somebody paid $69 million for bragging rights. That's what they're paying for. They're paying for bragging rights to say that they have the original copy. I don't get any utility from that. So what I think this is, is it's a lot of crypto guys that have made millions of dollars and they don't want to turn it into fiat because that would be betraying the movement. So they're recycling it into other digital assets at inflated prices. Now, the interesting thing about NFTs is it's, you know, I think that it could be a very important innovation. And one of the things that I'm focused on as a musician 
is the, the decline of the music industry because of file sharing, right? The fact that we can't control distribution of music files. If this is a possible solution to something like this and to establish copyrights on digital assets, I think it's a very cool innovation. But right now, I mean, it's just a sign of a bubble. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Thanks for sharing that, Jared. Um, as we reach to a close, I just want to say it's, it's been great catching up with you and hearing your views. A lot of people know where to find you on Twitter, the, the Daily Dirt app, but that as a as a uh, you know someone involved as a trader, as a, as a newsletter writer in the finance world, uh, perhaps fewer people are familiar with you as a musician, as you mentioned. So I just want to say, um, you know, your 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 SoundCloud is uh, stochastic, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah, great. Um, so people can check you out um, there. Well, uh, Jared, uh, thanks so much for sharing your views. Jack, thanks for having me. It was lots of fun as usual. Great. Look forward to talking to you soon. I hope you enjoyed hearing Jared's evaluation of market sentiment and where the different players are positioned. Now I want to turn to a more quantitative approach. I'm going to be speaking to Hugh Roberts of Quant Insights, who's got a sense of the key macro drivers that are actually behind the price action that we see every day. Here's my conversation with Hugh Roberts. Now I have the pleasure to be joined by Hugh Roberts, the Director of Analytics at Quant Insights. Hugh, how are you doing? Welcome to Real Vision. Hi, Jack. I'm good, thank you. Yourself? Uh, I'm doing well. So, Hugh, over the past few months, we've seen as rates have risen, they've really taken technology stocks down, stocks that have, let's say, a, a long-duration cash flow model down. That's been the narrative, at least, that inflation and, accordingly, rising rates are kryptonite to tech stocks. And no more. Uh, there's no more index that's more evocative of that than the NASDAQ 100. Uh, but Hugh, you at, at Quant Insight, you have a model that I think is so helpful for people who actually want to understand and really get a peek behind the curtain of what's really driving the model. So, you know, we've got a pie chart here. You know, every, if you turn on the TV, everyone's talking about inflation, inflation, inflation. That's driving down tech. But I see inflation and real rates really comprise a very small percentage of, of the pie. So what can you tell me, uh, Hugh, about the real drivers of uh, the Nasdaq's performance? Exactly that. We, we're very conscious here at Quant Insight that markets tend to latch on to a narrative. And sometimes that subjective narrative is correct. But what we like to do is use a proprietary version of principal component analysis, which is a statistical technique that gives you the independent pattern of associations between various macro factors and an asset class. So here we look at the NASDAQ. And we can show the, the key drivers at any point in time for any particular equity index. And the first thing to note about the NASDAQ was that there was a factor leadership change. So equity guys are typically used to thinking about factors like uh, growth and value and momentum. What QI does is the same, but uh, macro factors. Um, it's inflation, it's quantitative easing expectations, it's the strength of the dollar, things like that. And the first thing we noticed was that at the start of February was the Nasdaq became incredibly sensitive to expectations around the Fed and expectations with regard to their QE policy in particular. And on that uh, pie chart, which uh, you can see, that's that's point in time. 
But what we can do by clicking on any of those individual macro factors is give you the historical factor sensitivity. So people can see how sensitive something like the NASDAQ has been to these various macro drivers over the last 12 months or so. Uh, and if you scroll down on that chart, what you'll see is how sensitivity to QE has evolved over the last 12 months. What that shows is that uh, in, in that early February, the market was sort of humming along, but uh, right in, let's say, February 10th or so, markets got extremely sensitive to rates or expectations that the, the, the Fed would, would taper their balance sheet. Uh, and even though that, uh, you know, the, with the taper tantrum, the, the taper never came. The Fed has not announced that it's going to, to cut down its purchases, but the, the tantrum was still there. Uh, Hugh, it's interesting that we see, uh, you know, the markets has, have calmed down. The, the sensitivity of the NASDAQ to Federal Reserve's quantitative easing expectations has eased up. What does that mean to you as someone who's been working in, in macro uh, investing for, you know, over two decades? Back in February, what it meant was that we weren't seeing this pattern with any of the other major U.S. equity indices. Uh, S&P, uh, Russell, uh, they weren't displaying the same degree of sensitivity. So what that meant uh, early in February was that if we were going to get a taper or taperless tantrum, that the Nasdaq and tech stocks were going to be most vulnerable. And that's what's really unfolded over the last six weeks or so, that it's been tech that has suffered the most from the backup in bond yields of the spike in bond volatility. More recently, what happened is that we've seen a sharp change in model confidence. And if you fast forward to the beginning of March, our overall model confidence measure has fallen really sharply. In fact, it's fallen out of regime. So what we try to do is capture assets that are explained by macro factors, but then there are times clearly when other factors can be more important. That could be positioning, it could be sentiment, could be geopolitics. In the case of um, single stocks, um, it could be about micro company fundamentals. Um, in the case of technology, it could be fears about increased regulation coming from Washington. But we've seen a really, really sharp fall in model confidence. So after the fact, the leadership and the, the, the increased sensitivity to Fed quantitative easing expectations, the next stage of the process has been a sharp fall in model confidence. That means that we're now really at the whim of non-macro factors. So we have less of a strong call on U.S. tech right here, right now. That's really interesting. And, and what I love about, about the data set that, that you have is that you, you lay out the different factors. So, for example, you know, someone who's casually observing the markets, they might have noticed that as oil increases, uh, oil's up for the day, tech tends to go down for the day. But you actually have a framework of saying how much, what is the exact sensitivity? The regime thing that you noticed uh, that, that macro is getting a lot uh, less important, that's really interesting to me. So you see how things can, how sensitive things are, but then you also see how you can use that as a valuation metric. How uh, sense, you know, how, how much is the sensitivity to this one factor being valued? And I know that You've got your eye on a particular spread between, I believe, materials and industrials. And both of those are, are stocks that are deep, deep reflation names of if you believe that growth is picking up, if you believe, as so many do, that in, uh, inflation and rates are picking up, these are names that you want to be in. Uh, what can you tell me about materials and industrials? Absolutely. That's one of the kind of key use cases that the QI client base get from, um, from the platform and from our data. So to, to your point, um, clearly for the last couple of months now, everyone has bought into the reflation trade. 
um, you know, really started after the uh, the election in November, uh, got fresh impetus when the Democrats won in Georgia, um, and has got even further impetus again, I guess, with the um, the success of the, the vaccination program recently. So, the reopening narrative has been strong. So people will therefore be looking for, you know, laggards um, and assets that have got ahead of themselves in terms of that. So if you believe now we're going to get a bit of a wobble, a bit of a risk off um, period uh, for a time being, you're looking for those assets that are rich to the reflation trade. Uh, or if conversely, you think that, you know, the rotation carries on, you want something that has lagged the macro environment and is cheap to the reopening narrative. And what we found uh, looking at the, um, uh, the algorithm today is that the relative value play between U.S. materials, uh, the XLB ETF, and U.S. industrials, XLI, is A, cheap. Materials uh, are around 0.8 sigma uh, below industrials relative to their macro re regime. And what's interesting as well is the, the nature of the current macro regime. The key drivers uh, show just how defensive that ratio is. So you can see, for example, that if crude oil continues to fall, if U.S. inflation expectations come lower, if credit spreads widen and if VIX goes up, those are all consistent with materials outperforming industrials. So although they're both cyclical plays, materials are at this current juncture the relative defensive bet and you've got a nice valuation entry at 0.83 sigma cheap to the macro environment so this is the way that kind of qi gets used by by our clients looking for for leaders and laggards relative to you know the current narratives that are, that are dominating markets well hugh that, that's all the time we have today um Thanks so much for joining joining us. I, I'm actually we're going to be doing a Real Vision live where we're going to be uh, giving these topics the the depth and attention and the time that they deserve. But Hugh, I just I just had to ask you on for the daily briefing today, so people in the in the Real Vision community uh, get to know you and, and your analysis, so that they uh, you know can stay tuned for your talk on Tuesday. Sounds good, Jack. Thanks for your time. Great. Talk talk soon. Thanks. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.